turn now to the Word of God. I'm going to read from the Gospel of St. Matthew, beginning to read from the 31st verse of chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning to read from verse 31. The parable of the sheep and the goats. And when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison? And go to visit you. Then the king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. May God bless to us this reading from his word, and to his name be praised and glory. Amen. It gives me great pleasure tonight to welcome again to our company a long-established and great friend of the Christian suit who we've known for many, many years and who's been with us before for these lectures. So it's a great delight to have back with us the Reverend John Murray, Minister of the Free Church of Scotland, continuing. 
It says on your program that word retired. I don't really know what that word means, and I think John is going to explain to you before he begins to talk what his retiring really means. What are you up to, John? We think we need to know that. But you're most welcome. Uh, we do look forward to your talk tonight. This very important issue we're thinking about, the judgment seat of Christ, which I think some of us, particularly in evangelical circles, hear very little about the judgment seat of Christ. And we know from the word of God that the Father has appointed Jesus Christ to be the judge of the world, the living and the dead. What does that teach us about the righteousness and justice of God? How should it affect our evangelism? Are there rewards in heaven and levels of judgment in hell? All kinds of questions arise, which I think John will touch upon tonight. And what impact should this doctrine and belief have on our attitude as Christians to the life we live. We are saved in order that we might glorify God in our lives day by day. So we do look forward, John, to you coming to talk to us tonight. We welcome you back. And once again, in due time, John is content to answer questions which may arise from what he says to us. Thank you very much for your welcome. It's a privilege for me to come here again and to address you on this subject. I'm glad to be back in Newcastle. Most of my visits to Newcastle are very short, but today the Reverend George Curry showed me a little of the centre of your great city, and I was very impressed with the architecture. And I was saying to him it will be similar to that architecture that will be in the new heavens and in a new earth. It's great to be associated with the Christian Institute. We're deeply indebted to the Christian Institute for the interest that they take in us in Scotland. As you know, we foolishly appointed a Scottish Parliament some years ago, and they haven't lived up to expectations. Indeed, they've been a bit of a disaster. And it's good to have men who are very much aware of what's going on in Scotland and to be alerting us and to be taking these issues up with the Parliament. I'm a great union man. I believe in the union of the nations in the United Kingdom. I would hate to think that there were uh, places in, uh, on the border where we'd have to stop and show our passport in days to come, so you can reckon I'm not a Scottish nationalist. Anyway, to just say a little about myself, some of you know that for quite a number of years I worked for the Banner of Truth Trust as an editor, and then I went in for the ministry of the Free Church of Scotland and did a ministry in Oban in Argyle and then in Edinburgh in St. Columba. And after that ministry, I retired to the seaside resort of Glasgow, where I have been for the last four years. And it certainly wasn't retirement because in succession I was appointed what we call interim moderator of four congregations. That's looking after the congregations who are vacant. And I can say that I've settled all the congregations with a minister in these four years. And the only 
ongoing commitment I have is that I'm interim moderator of the congregation that is associated with us in Adelaide in South Australia. So we have already got someone for that, a congregation, and hope that it will be an induction in that congregation in the beginning of the new year. But uh, I still have to, I have to, but I still delight in preaching, and I'm out preaching every weekend, and also involved a little in editorial work and literature work and so on, which is a great delight to be in. So that is my retirement, and uh, I look forward to being of continued use to the Church of Jesus Christ here upon earth. Now, the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment is the last act in the great drama of the world's history. It is a subject of more than usual solemnity and awe. And as I seek to address this subject, I'm aware that a theme of terrific grandeur and transcendent interest can suffer from inadequacy of treatment. And I seek the help of the Holy Spirit as I bring these matters before you. The time and circumstances connected with the last judgment has aroused a lot of speculation among Christians down through the centuries. We have to bear in mind that there are things which cannot be ascertained before the great event itself. With regard to the exact time of the second coming and the judgment, we are left totally in the dark. Scripture tells us that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night. And I say these things by way of a preliminary to this address. Now, Western culture today is bound by the horizons of this life. We have made ourselves, as someone has said, a world without windows. Our culture is passionately focused on the comforts of this life and the pleasures of the present time. A significant change in this direction came in the 1960s. It was epitomized by the Beatle John Lennon in a song. I'm not going to sing the song, but these are the words. Imagine there is no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And since that time, the pace of change has greatly accelerated and we're living in a materialistic world that seeks to squeeze us into its mold. It's squeezing our Christianity out of shape. We have lost a biblical culture that views the life to come as more important than this life. We have a Christianity that has lost its bearings with respect to eternity. The reality of eternity sits and rests all too lightly upon us. It was not so in the best days of Christianity. When we think of the church of the first century, the church of the Reformation and the Puritan eras, the Great Awakening in in Britain here and in North America. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, in writing about the Puritans, says, the contribution of the Puritans to the doctrine of the judgment lies not so much in any distinctive doctrinal point in which they believed, 
but rather in a demonstration they give in their preaching and teaching that the last judgment was the most fundamental, most universal, and the most important issue of life. And as that is true of times of awakening, it was also true of individuals. Daniel Webster, one of the great Americans, a statesman, a lawyer, and an orator, at a banquet held in his honor among his fellow peers and leaders of America, he was asked this question. Sir, what is the greatest thought that has ever entered your mind? To which Webster replied, The greatest thought is that one day I will have to stand before a holy God and give an account of my life. That's something for us to think about. The greatest thought that ever entered into his mind. Now I want to deal with it in different sections tonight. And the first section I have is views on the time of the judgment. The last judgment is denied by liberal theologians who regard the last judgment passages as merely figurative of various judgments that occur throughout history. There are people who hold that the judgment is a process or that it has already taken place, like in A.D. 70. A major reason for this is that people confuse personal, historical, and partial judgments in history with the final judgment at the end of history. And the language used of these judgments is often very similar to the terminology used to describe the second coming of the Lord and the final judgment. For example, the day of the Lord, the day of vengeance, the day of visitation, the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The similarity of language does not mean that Christ's second coming and final judgment occurred, for example, in A.D. 70. It does teach us that all visitations of judgment throughout human history point to the final day of wrath and judgment. Now, there are some premillennialists who hold that there is to be three judgments. And the three judgments they hold to is a judgment of the risen and living saints at the parousia, or the coming of the Lord, which serves the purpose of vindicating the saints publicly and rewarding each one according to his work and assigning to them their respective places in the coming millennial kingdom. That's the judgment of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Then the second judgment is the judgment of the revelation of Christ, the day of the Lord, immediately after the great tribulation. This is a judgment mentioned in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, which we read. It is separated from the earlier period judgment by a period of seven years. And then there's the third judgment, the judgment of the wicked dead before the great white throne described in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. This judgment will be made more than a thousand years later than the preceding ones. Now, we cannot agree with this view because the Bible always speaks of the future judgment as a single event. It teaches us to look forward not to days, but to the day of judgment. Second Peter 3, 7, against the day of judgment. Second Timothy 4, verse 8, 
the righteous judge shall give me, says Paul, at that day. And writing to the Romans in chapter 2, verse 5, against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. One day. Secondly, there are passages of Scripture from which it is abundantly evident that the righteous and wicked appear in judgment together for a final separation. And that's clear in Matthew 25, which we read. And thirdly, the judgment of the wicked is represented as a concomitant of the parousia and of the revelation. In in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10, He shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints. The two go together. And in 2 Peter 3, 7, the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They're always together in Scripture. And so that's what we know in measure of the time of the judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then secondly, we look at the judge. Now the activities and effects by which the Trinity is manifested outwardly are never works of one person exclusively, but always the works of the divine being as a whole. In the economical order of redemption, God's works, some in, of God's works, some are described more particularly to one person and some more particularly to another. With respect to judicial authority, it is true that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will be the judge. This the psalmist magnificently set forth when he says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Psalm 50, verse 6. Doubtless the terrors and splendors, the glory and wrath of absolute and infinite deity will be gathered around the judgment throne on that day. There will be nothing lacking to clothe the scene with the authority and sanction of the great Godhead. But although God in three persons will be the judge as to the original authority, we are assured that the Lord Jesus Christ as mediator will be the judge in respect to the immediate exercise and dispensation of the judicial prerogative. Paul said to the Athenians, He has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And here we are told in the passage we read, our Lord says that the Son of Man is going to be the judge and the King. He will sit on the throne of his glory and judge all nations. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John, The Father has given me authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And when Peter preached to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house, he taught the people the importance of the doctrine, saying, And he commanded us to teach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now, we ask the question, why is it that the Lord Jesus Christ has been appointed the judge? Why has he been given this position and this role? Well, it is clear that it's an aspect of his exaltation and glorification. It's part of his reward, of his redemptive obedience. 
After describing our Lord's state of humiliation, even to the death of the cross, Paul says, Therefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth. What an indescribable display of Christ's glory, honor, and power will that day bring. This is the final stage in Christ's experience of the great reversal. The days of his humiliation will be in the past, and the times of supreme exaltation will have arrived. The man born in a manger, hunted by Herod, despised and rejected by the people, who suffered at the hands of wicked and just men, who was spat upon, beaten, whipped and crucified, will now be seated on a great white throne, surrounded by a mighty army of angels, encircled with a great rainbow, with a countenance brighter than the sun. In his exalted presence, every knee must bow. Jesus will have gone from the bitter dregs of debasement and humiliation to the throne of the universal judgment. He was judged at Pilate's seat, will summon to his throne, all before his throne, before him Caesars, statesmen, presidents, prime ministers, emperors, dictators, kings, generals, pontiffs, atheists, film producers, TV pundits, and all men of renown on earth will bow as beggars in the dust before the Lord of glory. It is an aspect of his exaltation and glorification. But secondly, it is because he's suited to judge mankind. It is also fit that Jesus should be the final judge because he possesses the nature of those who are to be arraigned at the bar. And having been a companion of men in the flesh, experimentally knew their temptations, and by actual observation as a man among them, is acquainted with their constitution. No foreigner to the human race will fill the judgment seat. He will fill the judgment seat before which that human race will stand to receive irrevocable assignment to heaven or to hell. A man will be the judge. He knows the measure of their case. He understands what it is to be a man. No person will ever be able to look back on that day and say that he who sat on the great white throne was too stern because he knew nothing of human need and weakness. Thirdly, it is because he is the mediator of the covenant of grace. He will appear in human nature with all the marks of his suffering on Calvary, so as to be visible to every eye that should behold the eventful scene. And it is no doubt eminently proper that Christ as mediator should be the judge, because a judgment will constitute an integral part of the scheme of redemption and will be the closing act in the history of its application and the inviolable seal of man's relationship to it. Throughout all of human history after the fall, grace and mercy came through Christ. It is appropriate that the one who endured the shame and shed his own blood so that men might be reconciled to God 
should judge all the people who reject his gospel. Every person who rejected the Savior's message of peace, mercy, and love must endure the judge's words of wrath and fiery indignation. It is the wrath of the Lamb, the one who was slain for the sins of people. Those who treated the gospel offer with apathy or contempt will on that day be seized with horror and dread. So it's because of these things that God has made the Lord Jesus Christ to be the judge. And as we think of it, we just mentioned briefly those who are going to accompany the Lord Jesus Christ at that judgment seat. We are told that angels, he will come with his holy angels, and they are coming with him to assist him in the work that they call the people from all four corners of the earth to that great judgment day. And they are sitting there in judgment with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are acquiescing in that judgment. And they are there as those who behold the work of Christ. But also we are told, and it's a very difficult thing to grasp, that the saints will also sit and judge with Christ. Then he will beckon them to join him in the midst of the throne and join him in that judgment. Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Jude 24. Know ye not that the saints shall judge the world? They shall identify themselves with his judgment. They shall applaud the righteous sentence passed. There's a verse in Psalm 149, verse 9, where it said of the saints, to execute upon them the judgment written, his honor have all his saints. They will take part in that judgment. And so there's the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's the, the angels, and there's the saints on that great day. Well, thirdly, we look at the nature of the judgment. The judgment is, first of all, a public event. We are told that the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Jesus will return in glory, surrounded by the host of heaven. As a judge, he will summon all mankind. The dead shall arise at his call. The dead will come forth from their graves and the oceans will give up the dead within them. This descent is visible. Every eye shall see him. It's audible. There'll be a shout. It's majestic, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And the coming is for judgment and for deliverance. We read in the account there of the coming that there will be the trump of God. And what did the trumpet do in the Old Testament? It heralded the beginning of the 50th year in Israel when debts were remitted, slaves were freed, and property reverted to its original owners. There will be liberty at that day throughout the whole universe of God. And so God has ordained that the final judgment will be visible and public And for certain reasons, it is visible and public in its nature because it will glorify Christ. As we said already, the Lord who was publicly humiliated, condemned as a criminal, 
and crucified will be publicly exalted and vindicated before the whole human race. Every mouth will be stopped and every knee shall bow before him. It's visible in public because it will ensure that the secrets of men, whether good or evil, will be exposed in a very public manner. In that day, says Paul, when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Every sinner will hear the story of his wicked life published to his everlasting shame. The public nature of the event is obviously intended to magnify the guilt, shame and dread of that occasion. But also, as far as his saints is concerned, there'll be a public vindication of them. Not only will the covenant people witness the exposure and condemnation of their enemies and persecutors, the persecutors of faithful Christians, the skeptics and mockers of the truth, will witness the exaltation of believers for the fruits of their faith, the good works done in the body. It is a day when the tables are turned, when the humble shall be exalted, the meek shall inherit the earth, and the wicked and the proud and boastful shall be abased. All who laughed at true religion will be publicly judged and cast into hell. It's a public event, but also it's a judicial event. The whole scene of this event is one of a grand courtroom. There is a summons to which all must appear. There are those who appear, the human race and the angelic hosts. There is a judge upon the throne, Jesus Christ. There is the examination of evidence whereby everyone outside of Christ is proclaimed guilty and those who are believed are declared righteous and are declared righteous based on the merits of Christ and the evidence in their lives of that righteousness by the fruits that are mentioned. And there's an execution of the sentence and the wicked are cast into the lake of fire while the righteous are ushered into paradise and so therefore it is that kind of event then fourthly the parties that will be judged who will be judged well all mankind before him shall be gathered all nations there's a universality about the judgment all nations he has made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth God deals with nations and he will hold them to account. There's a great congregating at the last judgment. It's a great assize. Paul in his preaching at the Areopagus was very clear on the universality of that judgment. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. All men everywhere, a double expression emphasizing universality. Every person in every place will appear at this judgment seat and therefore they must repent. They must come to Christ. You cannot restrict the terms of those people that Paul is referring to there in Acts 17. 
There's a universality. There's a great size, a great congregating. But also, there's an individuality about it and a particularity. Because Paul says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things he has done in his body, whether it be good or bad. There's going to be an assessment for every individual, for the good as well as for the bad. And again, he emphasizes the same teaching in Romans 14, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, so that everyone shall give an account of himself to God. Everyone, every individual. And that's plainly taught us also in Matthew 25, where there's that division, where the sheep appear at the judgment seat as well as the goats. And there's a reward given to these saints at the judgment seat. But not only will it be all mankind, but also there'll be evil angels judged there at that day. The Bible says that evil angels will be judged. Peter says, God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Jude 6 says that the fallen angels are reserved in everlasting chains in darkness for the judgment of the great day. In Revelation 20, we are told that the devil will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be tormented day and night forever. And that's the fate that awaits the devils and Satan. Remember how the demons said to Jesus in Matthew 8, 29, Have you come here to torment us before the time? They knew that there was a day of judgment awaiting them. They knew that there was that punishment awaiting them. Even the demons knew that Christ was supreme and that they would be judged by that Christ one day. Then fifthly, we see the necessity of the judgment. Why does God go to all the trouble of having this grand public event? Why should there be a final judgment? Well, we'll give two reasons for the necessity of it. And the first is, God's nature and character requires that a perfect and public reckoning to take place. Its necessity is ultimately related to the character and being of the eternal God. It's a vindication of God's justice, holiness, and impartiality. The whole universe must witness the reality that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. The last judgment is a public display of God's righteousness and holy character. In this judgment, God's glory as a just one, and the righteous one, and the fair one, and the straight one, will shine forth before all creation. There'll be no resentment in eternity that there were miscarriages of justice before this throne. In all of heaven and earth and hell, the glory of God's utter integrity will be acknowledged in how he dealt with every single one of his creatures. In that great day, there will be a display of the unity of all God's perfections, his a righteousness and his mercy, his wrath and his love. 
as every sin is met with justice. And then secondly, the final judgment resolves the many injustices that occur in this world that have not been rectified on earth. There must be a day when injustice ends and there's a righteous distribution of punishments and rewards. All history cries out for this world judgment. The whole creation longs for it. The martyrs in heaven cry for it with a loud voice. The believing community prays for the coming of Christ. And Christ himself says, the Alpha and the Omega says, I am coming soon. My reward is with me to repay everyone according to his works. There are wicked people who live and die in a lap of luxury. We have in scripture the case of Dives, the rich man. And there are people who are murderers and rapists and thieves who are never caught, exposed and punished for their crimes. There are dictators who oppress, torture and murder innocent people, yet who live in palaces and die at a very old age. There are many people who have been severely wronged and have not experienced closure or justice in this life. There are thousands of Christians who have been slandered, beaten, imprisoned, and even murdered for their faith. That's what the judgment cries out for. Will a righteous and holy God allow such inequities to go unpunished? Will the God of perfect justice allow injustice to continue in his universe? Will Jehovah allow evil people to get away with their sins and crimes? God's nature requires that all injustices be resolved. God displays his perfect justice by publicly exposing all sins and crimes, by publicly declaring the guilt of the offending parties, and by publicly meeting out the sentence of condemnation. There is a day of perfect justice and closure because God's nature demands it and this world cries out for it. There is no ethical loose ends in Jehovah's kingdom. God will also make sure that all who believed in Christ and faithfully served him will be rewarded openly. The necessity of the judgment. Then, sixthly, the standard of the judgment. Before the august judge are gathered all nations, and he proceeds to separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He sets the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And the distinction there in Matthew 25 is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Deeds are defined as either good or bad. The standard by which all men will be judged is the revealed will of God in nature, law, and gospel. That's what will be the standard at that great day. All will be judged by the will of God. The Bible teaches that people who have never received special revelation or heard the gospel, will be judged and condemned. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law 
will be judged by the law, Romans 2.12. The apostle argues that the Gentiles, those who do not possess the written scriptures, have the work of the law written on their hearts, Romans 2.15. Because everyone is created in God's moral image, they have a conscience that accuse or excuse when they commit certain acts. Therefore, people cannot use the fact that they had never had a Bible as an excuse to avoid God's judgment and condemnation. Everyone knows what is right and wrong. Therefore, Jesus can say that the resurrection, they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. All will be judged by the will of God. Then, the standard means that believers will be acquitted. If the standard is the righteousness of God, then the believers are acquitted on the grounds of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. That God-righteousness that is in their possession, the righteousness with divine properties, and that righteousness always elicits divine approbation. Whatever God sees that righteousness with which his people is clothed, he approves, he accepts, he, he acknowledges. And it cannot be anything else than that at the day of judgment. It will be first and foremost a day in which the people of God will be acquitted. Who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? But then you say, what about the judgment of Christians? It will be first and foremost a judgment, a vindication of the people of God, not of humiliation. This judgment will present them as they truly are in the sight of God. They stood before earthly courts and tribunals of the professing church. Inquisitions decided to burn them alive. Tyrants sent their troops against them and massacred them by the thousand. But on this day of judgment, Christ will say to them, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. John Newton says that the fact that we're going to be judged cannot be designed to weaken what we are taught in almost every page of Scripture of the free, absolute, and unalterable nature of a believer's justification, the benefit of which as to the forgiveness of sins is signified by the phrases blotting out, not remembering, casting behind the back, into the depths of the sea. The sins of a believer are so effectually removed that even when or if they are sought out, they cannot be found, for Jesus has borne them away. Believers are complete in him and clothed in his righteousness. They shall stand before God without spot or wrinkle. Who shall lay anything to their charge? And what is the evidence for these believers? How are they acquitted? Well, we see in the chapter we read, in the verses we read, how they are acquitted. They are acquitted because... The fact that they are believers is is evidenced by the fruits of righteousness. A holy character is the ultimate in God's standards of values. 
and a justification of the, of the believer shall be seen in a, in a moral universe as practically justified in the holiness of life and character that is the fruit of it. The public judgment at the end of the day must have respect to the fruits of righteousness as seen in the character and life. That's the criteria that is used in that passage. We say justification by faith, and we're right. They'll be acquitted on the ground of their faith in Christ and the reception of Christ's righteousness. But as James tells us, the only evidence we have that we're true believers is that we bear fruit, that we have works. Faith without works is dead. How is it going to be seen by the whole universe that these people, believers who are acquitted at the day of judgment, are true believers because there's the fruit in their lives? I was unhungered and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty and ye gave me drink. That is the evidence to the assembled universe that these people are true penitents and believers in Christ. And that's the evidence that is brought before the judgment seat of Christ. But then we ask the question, will the sins of believers be made public? Well, we must say they will. Because at the judgment seat, the passages or, or about the judgment seat include both the believers and the unbelievers. And we can see from other passages of Scripture that there's an evaluation of the works of believers. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will manifest the counsels of the heart, and then shall every man have praise of God. And that includes all of us. There'll be a manifestation, there'll be a revelation of the very counsels of the heart, of the secret things. And in another passage in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 12 to 15, we have that passage where it is speaking about the works of Christians. And some are building gold, silver, precious stones. And others are producing wood, hay, and stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what it is. The works of Christians are going to be tried and tested. So therefore they will be there at the judgment seat. And those works that are unsatisfactory will be burnt up with fire. And those works that are satisfactory, those works that are gold, silver, and precious stone will be rewarded because God will judge the secrets of the heart. And that's what we've got to remember as we go on in a Christian life. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in a day of judgment. And it doesn't pertain simply to the wicked, it pertains to the righteous. Every idle word we will have to give an account at the day of judgment. In a day when God shall judge the secrets of men according to my gospel, there'll be a judgment of the works of the people of God, but these things will not be held against them. 
We have an example in Scripture. Scripture doesn't over, doesn't gloss over the sins of God's saints. We are recording in Scripture the sins of men like Abram and Moses and David and Peter. And their very fact that they are there magnifies the grace and mercy of God that they were forgiven. John Newton says in some profound words, When we arrive in glory, unbelief and fear will cease forever. Our nearness to God and communion with him will be unspeakably beyond what we can now conceive. Therefore, the remembrance of our sins will be no quenching of our bliss, but rather the contrary. The remembrance of our sins will be no quenching quenching of our bliss, but rather the contrary. And also, believers will receive rewards. Believers will receive rewards based on the quality of the works well done here on earth. Now, if anyone build on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he shall receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved as through fire. The passage teaches us that even though God enables us to to do good works by his grace, and it's only by his grace we do them, in his sovereign good pleasure, he is going to reward us for these very works of grace at the end of the day. And see how Christ acknowledges the good works of the people of God there in Matthew 25. And although there will be degrees of reward for believers at the final judgment, the joy of every single Christian will yet be full and complete for all eternity. Our happiness will no longer depend on our status and position and power, but in our delight in the will of God. Any decision God makes about us or concerning those whom we love will be perfect as far as we are concerned. If others have higher status in heaven than ourselves, we'll be able to rejoice. And that's how, in that great sermon by Robert Murray McChain, how there'll be no regret as far as the people of God are concerned over the judgment of the wicked. Why? Because they'll have the mind of God, the mind of Christ, and they'll be so tuned in to the mind and will of God that they'll rejoice in all the decisions and all the judgments of God and of Christ. And that's what will be true of us. But then the wicked will be sent to hell. And how will the wicked be judged? Well, according to this passage, they will be judged on the lack of the fruit of righteousness. The lack of that righteousness done out of love to Christ. And what does it manifest? It manifests that there is no change in their nature and character. The rejected mediator, the rejected saviour, he rejects me and does not receive my words, That has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him at the last day. It's the word of Christ that's going to judge the wicked. 
And you see, in these parables, we have the parable of the talents. And those, the man who hid his talent in the earth. What is said of him? It is said, thou wicked and slothful servant. He didn't fulfill the purpose for which he was created. He was a slothful servant. But the first thing that is said about him, he was wicked. His nature had never been changed. He was never the subject of regeneration. And also we have in that passage, that very solemn passage for ministers and for workers in the kingdom of God. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter, but he that doeth the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name done many wonderful works, and in thy name have cast out devils? And he will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. All their works were negated by their failure in character. They had success in the church here below, outward success, but there was no change of heart. There was no union with Christ, and that was the evidence at the day of judgment that they were still ungodly and unrighteous because there were no works to show that there was a change in their life. And also for the wicked, there'll be degrees of punishment. Sinclair Ferguson has said, degrees of punishment there may be, but the least of these degrees will be unbearable. The very least of them. Although the question of whether or not a person goes to heaven or hell depends solely on whether he or believes in Christ or not, there are different degrees of punishment in hell. As there are different degrees of reward in heaven, everything will be determined on that great day according to what was done on earth. That's a very important thing. And the severity of the judgment of the wicked is related to the amount of light that was spurned by them when they were here upon earth. Jesus taught that those who rejected the gospel message, accompanied by great signs, will receive a greater damnation. Woe to thee, Chorazin! Woe to thee, Bethsaida! For the mighty works which were done in thee had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in a day of judgment than for thee. And he says that those who knew their master's will and did not prepare themselves according to it shall be beaten with many stripes. There'll be degrees of punishment in hell. And the parable of the, te- te- of the talents tells us that as well. There'll be degrees of punishment in hell. And you see, when I say that, it's character that counts at the end of the day. It is character. And people think they can go through this life and and live as they please and land in heaven at the end of the day. Well, as Paul Helms says, it's a moral impossibility for that to happen because if anyone goes into heaven without their nature being changed, heaven would cease to be heaven. Him that is righteous, let him be righteous still. 
Him that is holy, let him be holy still. Character is fixed in this life by the change that takes place in conversion. And that character determines destiny. Yes, we are justified by the, by the blood of Christ and by the righteousness of Christ. But you see, it's not only a status that's changed, it's a nature that's changed. And the evidence that our status is changed is that our nature also is changed. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He'll go on being like that. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. These are the characters that will determine where we are at the great judgment day. That will be what determines whether we are sheep or goats. Well, finally, I come to number seven for completion, and that's the motivation of the judgment. The thought of the judgment ought to have a profound effect on the lives of all men and women. As we noticed at the beginning, the Puritans recognized how dominant a motif the last judgment is in the Bible. That's why the gospel is so necessary and why it's such a glorious gospel to preach. These Puritans and the men who followed them used their powers to express the truth and the implications of that truth for sinners. First of all, to the unconverted, the coming judgment is presented in connection with the command to repent. Now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day in which he is going to judge the world. That's the great thing that has to be proclaimed to the unconverted and to the gospel hypocrite. That's the application of the day of judgment that they have to be converted. Sinners who listen to such teaching are exhorted to recognize their present spiritual condition. Thomas Martin says, No destiny deserveth to be known so much as this. Shall I be saved or shall I be damned? Live everlastingly in heaven or hell. Sinners stand in danger of losing the world, their souls, heaven, and all hope if they remain in a state they are in. And a great need, therefore, as we proclaim the, great, the judgment day, is a need to be converted. Think of the Puritans, that great period of gospel blessing. Think of the works that were produced in that period. We could only mention one or two that are better known. Elaine's alarm to the unconverted. Richard Baxter's call to the unconverted. And later on, John Bunyan's pilgrim's progress. Flee from the city of destruction and set your face to the celestial city. The great necessity, the great necessity is to be converted and to be assured that we are prepared for the great certainties of death and judgment. It is appointed unto men once to die, but after death, the judgment. And the outcome of that realization ought to be a life of true godly fear. There was a time when a Christian was described 
as a God-fearing man or a God-fearing woman. Our lives ought to be lived before our Creator in the face of God. And that's what we need to do in applying the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the judgment. It's a call to the unconverted. It's an alarm call to those who are unsaved. But then to the Christian, it is certain things. The Puritans meditated long and hard on the world to come. I think that meditation was one of the great secrets of their strength. Richard Baxter meditated on eternal things for one half hour each day. They understood that life was essentially a preparation for the one to come. True life for God is life lived in a light of eternity. That's the only way we can live properly here upon earth, if we live in the light of eternity. It's a motivation for holiness. The Wherefore says, Paul, we aim, make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Peter, in his second epistle, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation, conduct, and godliness? Be diligent to be found in him in peace without spot and blameless. He's coming, and a judgment's coming, and all our works are going to be examined and exposed. It's a motivation for holiness. Secondly, it's a motivation for watchfulness. While the time of the last judgment is not known by us, it is, as Thomas Watson says, that God would have us live every day as if it were the last day. That's how the early church looked on the second coming. They were expecting it. They were living in the light of it. We've lost it. I remember when I was growing up, the emphasis there used to be on the second coming of Christ. It's almost gone from our churches. We've almost lost it completely. The expectation of the second coming, there were many weird theories about it, and that's, but we forget about that. But the essential thing is that we should be focused upon it. And also it's a motivation for industry, for work. A vision of heaven is a powerful incentive to action in this present life. It was C.S. Lewis who observed, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that have become so ineffective in this. This epitomized the whole Puritan approach to life. And finally, with regard to gospel ministers, first of all to the unconverted, then to the Christian, now to the gospel minister. When Paul speaks about the judgment seat there in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Who are the best men persuaders? Those who fear God and who are filled with a sense of the reality of eternal things. 
Who are the best evangelists? Well, you will not find evangelists among modernists and liberals. Those who reject the authority of God's word and do not have the fear of God, who do not believe in a final judgment and heaven and hell, they don't have a gospel to preach. The gospel message is about sin and wrath and judgment, but also about penal substitution, justification and and regeneration. That's the gospel. All of the word must be preached. We preach a God of judgment and a God of salvation. There's been a tremendous toning down in recent years on the whole teaching of the doctrine of hell. And it's an unbalance in the Christian message today in the church. We are simply ambassadors delivering a message. We are stewards of the manifold grace of God, and we are to be found faithful. And what a profoundly liberating reality this is. It is a great thing to be under, as someone has said, the magnificent tyranny of the gospel. You have the gospel, and that's what you're to preach. And God has given you the gospel, and that's what you preach. And you're under that tyranny. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel of God. The world may mock and ridicule. The church may falter and question these realities. Our hearts must echo the sentiments of Thomas Carlyle, who, having been called to be a preacher, would stoop to be a king. The pulpit is erected on the threshold of eternity. How will men and women hear the realities unless we proclaim them? Christ proclaimed them. The apostles did. We must preach about death and dying, the brevity of life. Baxter, I preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Through the preachers of the gospel, the awesome realities of life and death, heaven and hell, salvation and judgment are brought into the present. You see, that's the thing about preaching. It's taking the realities that we have in the word of God into the present. We've lost that concept of preaching, but that's what the preacher is there to do. He's to take these realities that are so vague in the minds of men and women, and he is to make them present and living realities. That's what the great preachers did. Robert Murray McChain, the saintly McChain. Go on, dear friends, but an inch of time remains, and then the eternal ages roll on forever. But an inch in which we may stand and proclaim the way of salvation to a perishing world. We're standing, as it were, between perishing sinners and a lost eternity, and we have to sound a trumpet And if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for the day of battle? What was the greatest times in the history of the church? They were the times of an awakening. And it's not only the awakening of sinners, but the awakening of the people of God who are asleep. And there's a great need for such an awakening today. That's our crying need. We have lost the threat of coming judgment 
and the other worldly focus represents a dangerous development, one that has produced a largely sick and misshapen Western Christianity. Don Carson has said, Life here and now is not shaped and controlled by this perspective. It's not merely frivolous, it is culpably rebellious. We have set ourselves free from the looming realities of heaven and hell and found ourselves lost in moral disarray, mired in culture and individual purposelessness. That's what's come over the church. That's what's come over Christianity. And we need preachers. And we need an awakening. And we need to be aroused to eternal things so that we will stem the tide by the grace of God that has so been so much going on in these last decades and we need to weep for the souls of men. I was reading coming down in the train the life of William Chalmers Burns and that situation that was through of him when he was preparing to go in for the ministry and he was in Glasgow and he was in the Argyle Arcade and it was, his mother was there and she was coming to him and he didn't, she didn't, he didn't take any notice of her. And wh- what the explanation was that he had been out in Argyle Street and he'd so- seen these multitudes and he thought of them as perishing and going to eternity and he had to turn into this arcade to weep over the souls of men. Oh, if we could have that attitude restored in our churches and in our ministry for the salvation of souls and for the well-being of the church and ultimately for the restoration of our nation to the things that we were blessed by and made us great in days past. Right. Any questions before I call on people to ask them? Yes, I just wondered where um, predestination and election fit in with God's justice on Judgment Day. Well, it's clear in the, the invitation that Christ gives to his people. He says, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And that indicates that those who are going to be given that blessed invitation at the end of the day are those who are elected them all eternity and therefore it's sovereign grace that chose them sovereign grace that saved them and sovereign grace that will be that which will be giving them that eternal inheritance is that answer your question or Um, to a certain extent yes but to another extent, it's, I mean, it's a question that's been asked for a long, long time and in many, many different ways. Mm. Um, how does that, if, if, people are, if certain people are elected by God, where does that leave the people who aren't elected in the eyes of fairness and justice of judgment? Yeah. Well, I'm afraid there's no ultimate answer to that. As you say, it has been a question that has gone down. It, the church through the centuries and we just have to leave it in the sovereignty of God and believe that he does all things justly and unrighteously and I suppose the one answer that we can give is that none deserve 
to be saved. None deserve heaven. And therefore, those who are chosen are those who are chosen out of sovereign love and grace. And they have to attribute their salvation to that sovereign love and grace. And those who were non-elect and will perish will in the end have no excuse because they do not merit that God, God is not under any obligation to save any in that a man rebelled and sinned against him. And God is not under obligation, but in his great mercy and love, he has chosen to save some. Any other questions? Yes, sir. I'm just concerned with the lovely hymn we often sing, My Hope is Built on nothing less but Je- except Jesus, but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Just w- wondering how that fits in with what you've been saying uh, as, as regards our, our hope in Christ. You, you seem to imply on that great day of judgment that Christian is being judged for his standard of holiness and righteousness that he's attained in this life. Now, yeah. John doesn't sing here, but do you know the hymn? <laughs> My, yes. I used to. Where is our hope now then? The hope is, always, is there all the time. In because, Christ. Yes, because as I made clear, we are acquitted at the day of judgment solely on the grounds of Christ's death and his righteousness imputed to us. But when you have a court case, you have to bring forth evidence And it's not so much for the fact that God knows about the people and Christ knows about the people, but what the Day of Judgment is, it's a public demonstration. It's showing to the whole assembled universe who has the right to be acquitted and who has the right to be condemned. And what is brought forth at the Day of Judgment are the works that these people did. And you'll notice that the people themselves were very self-effacing. They never thought much of what they did. When did we see thee? And they did it out of love for Christ. But these works come up at the day of judgment as the evidence that these are the saved people. Because although we have our hope in Christ as the status that has been changed, we also have a change of nature and a change of character and regeneration. And so what comes up for evidence at the day of judgment is the fruits of righteousness that have come from that change of nature and character. But the hope is built completely on, I mean, the song of the, of the redeemed throughout all eternity is worthy as a lamb. And all our salvation is dependent upon what Christ has done for them. How did you square all this with the thief on the cross? He didn't have much time to do any works at all. And yet Jesus said, I'll see you in paradise. Was it that Jesus saw? Because the other thief was uh, arrogant. He says, if you, if you are the Son of God, come down. He didn't just see it, he heard it. He heard it, yes. Well, I would just say there's an evidence of a change in his life by acknowledging his sin that we have done these things, you know, and uh, that uh, we are worthy of punishment for them, accepting that he had done wrong and justifying 
the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I mean, there'll be people, of course, the whole question of <laughs> a people who perhaps, well, I'm not going to bring that controversy in, but died in infancy and so on. And there's a great many in, uh, mysteries with regard to these things. And there'll be people at the Day of Judgment who didn't have the time in their lives to give evidence of a whole life of works and usefulness and that. But nevertheless, they are saved on the basis of the, of the righteousness of Christ and what little evidence there is, you know, will be there. So it'll all be based upon the work of Christ. But when there's the opportunity for people to show forth that they have been changed and have their character changed, then that evidence will be, be seen by the whole world. Just a card here. Um, thank you for what you said about uh, degrees of uh, reward and uh, punishment. And uh, um, I might be wrong, but I think also that verse uh, where Christ talks about storing up treasure in heaven, and there's a suggestion um, there of uh, degrees of uh, you may store up more or less uh, treasure. But I wonder if you, if you think that Scripture sheds any more light on the question of what uh, our rewards uh, might be. Yeah. I think it's to do with a, the fact that, you know, there's the vessels in eternity, they're not all the same, you know, and they, they'll all be filled, as it were, to a fullness of blessedness. But there'll be those with a greater capacity who have exercise their gifts and their graces here upon earth who it's difficult to think of what it will be but who will have a greater fullness as it were and blessedness but that's not depriving other people and there'll be no jealousy in heaven but I think it, it will be so that you know there's that verses in Daniel that those who have turned many to righteousness will shine as the stars forever. There'll be, there'll be people who will have done great things upon earth and who have been instrumental in converting sinners and so on. And they'll shine more brightly in heaven. And uh, wasn't it uh, George Whitfield said that he would expect that John Wesley would be nearer the throne than he was. And that was a, a wonderful s statement to come from Whitfield showing that lack of jealousy here upon earth. And it'll be so that we'll be so conformed to the will and mind of God in heaven and all the glory will be to the Lamb and to God. And those who have given greater glory to God upon earth and who are perhaps have a greater reward in heaven will be showing forth more of his grace and so on in heaven and that will be a cause of rejoicing for the other saints. So there'll be no one grudging anyone. Those who are rulers over ten cities, whatever that means, and they're not going to the grounds of the paper next week, but I believe that in, in, in the new heavens and the new earth, it will be a restored earth as a main base for that. And therefore, I believe there'll be work and there'll be service and there'll be responsibility in that new heavens and that new earth. And that may be what is referred to when it speaks about having been ruler over ten cities or five cities. It's that, as it were, the, the outcome of what they were 
faithful here upon earth, and that faithfulness will be rewarded by greater responsibility in the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> Mr. Murray, you indicated that it is particularly appropriate for the mediator of the covenant of grace to be the principal uh, adjudicator in, 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 in the judgment and so on. Yeah. Um, isn't this, doesn't this come out particularly with respect to the righteous? Because this isn't just a declaration of their position, but it actually constitutes the sort of final act and, and um, an enormous movement forward and completion of the work of grace because they are by that act of judgment confirmed in eternal righteousness and bliss and so on. Yeah, yeah. In relation to that, the problem I have about the saints being judged is that when the saints that they are alive when Christ comes and are caught up to meet with him in the air. They are, they are his, his bride. And he's so united to his bride that you cannot separate the bridegroom and the bride on the day of judgment. And in that sense, I say that the saints are judging because they're in Christ. It's, a, it's, it's an amazing concept for us to think that on that day, they're all brought into that. They're, they're united to him here upon earth, but then they're brought into that everlasting union that will go on throughout all eternity, and they are there with him as his, as his body, the church, on the day of judgment, and you can't separate Christ from his saints. And therefore, there's a sense in which uh, they are judging the world in that they are in Christ. But also, on the other hand, they are being judged or their works are being assessed on that day. But as you say, it's a consummation of, the, of, of what is true of them here upon earth. The day of judgment will be the consummation of the salvation that they have in Christ. You quoted the biblical phrase, the wrath of the Lamb. Can you expand that a bit, please? Well, it's more than the wrath of God in that this wrath is the wrath of the one who was held up and held forth as a saviour of sinners. And they, he was proclaimed as a saviour of sinners. And those sinners who rejected that offer of mercy and of grace will experience not only the wrath of God, which is upon all men and uh, we are born under that wrath of God. But there's, I think it's an indication that at the end of the day, one of the most terrible things that unbelievers will confront is that there'll be the wrath of the Lamb, the God-man, who was offered to them in the gospel and they, re they rejected it. So the, 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 the Son of God, the Son of Man, has been given the judgment to perform and because he is the God-man there's the wrath of God which is against sin but also the wrath of the one who was given as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and have not only sinned against God the, the triune God but in a particular manner they have sinned against Christ because there was an offer of salvation given to them 
in Christ. And they refused that offer. They spurned it. And at the end of the day, they will have to face the wrath of the one who they rejected. Thanks very much for your talk. I had two questions. Um, The first was really about those who haven't heard the gospel. You read from Romans 2, all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And I think I'm right in you saying that those who haven't heard the gospel are condemned. Do you think we can be um, certain about people who haven't heard the gospel? Or do you think maybe there is a possibility that... um, God may still see them as righteous through Christ's death, even though they may not have heard of it. Because there is a school of thought which would maybe say they could still be declared righteous. That was my first question. Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to reply to that? Right, right. Yes, well, I can't believe that. I can't see that really in Scripture. Uh, there's those who have never heard the law... Uh, those who have outside the revelation of God, the Gentiles, who will be condemned by the law written in their hearts, and there's the Jews who will be condemned, those who are unbelievers, like under the Old Testament, who will be judged by the law of Moses. And then there will be those who have heard the gospel and uh, heard the word of Christ who will be judged ultimately by that word. But as far as those who have never heard the gospel... And how is it unjust that they should be condemned? I mean, that's a question that has been debated, as you know, in recent times. And some people have perhaps tended to say, well, we mustn't rule out the fact that uh, they, they will be saved at the end of the day. But Scripture says that we can only be saved by union with the Lord Jesus Christ and acceptance of his righteousness and Unless that happens, and uh, we can't be absolutely authoritative on the question as to whether God can do that in his sovereignty, we leave that to God. But we go by scripture and say that if they haven't believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, be united to him, then there's no evidence that there's grounds for hope for their salvation. That was your first question. Second um, so my second question was really, you mentioned how we're going to be, as believers, judged um, according to what we've done here, and it's going to be exposed to the whole world. So, it, I don't know, it just seems quite hard that believers are going to be um, almost shamed at the day of judgment, because I was always under the understanding that we would be um, glorified and, and seen, you know, Christ's righteousness would be imputed onto us. But it almost seems like maybe what you're saying, we might be shamed before that happens. That's a shocking thing you heard. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah, it's yeah. just it's something I've not really thought about before yeah. and it seemed quite a hard thing. Well, if you approach it from God's standpoint and the Day of Judgment standpoint, the grounds of this universe is the moral character of God. And is written into his whole creation. It's not only God in heaven who is morally perfect, but he has made, he has built into his whole creation and every creature this moral responsibility. And God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And God's character demands at the end of the day 
that everything that is contrary to God that has ever happened in the whole history of the universe will be exposed at that day. That's, that's what, what the judgment of light, the great white throne, signifies, that all that is dark must be exposed. And therefore, it cannot be but that the, the wrongs of the people of God are exposed, but they're exposed not to their condemnation. It's a very difficult area, but it's, it's, it's not to their condemnation because they're, they're, they're acquitted, their sins are cast behind God's back. But these things have to be revealed. And as I think it was John Newton who said, in a way it's not going to lessen their sense of the glory and the blessedness because they're going to see what they've been delivered from. And the whole world, the whole universe is going to see what these people were acquitted from. And therefore it's going to magnify the grace and mercy of Christ. And that's the way I look at it. I'm afraid we must stop now. We've been going for nearly an hour and three quarters. And uh, thank you very much, John, for coming tonight. And we're grateful to you.